Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. This podcast is focused on gaining hard-to-reach patients' input during the global COVID pandemic, building on success for future projects from the 2022 Patients as Partners in Clinical Research Summit. For more information about the Patients as Partners in Clinical Research Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit patientsaspartners.org. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. I'd like to acknowledge that I am a GSK employee, but I would also like to acknowledge um, all the individual patients and my colleagues who helped us find people who were willing to share their story about their COVID experience at the beginning of the pandemic. When you think about my title, it's kind of counterintuitive. You know, how can it be difficult to find patients to speak about COVID? So I'm going to take you back in time. I want you to think back to um, December of 2019, early um, March of 2020. I think that's about when Pennsylvania locked down. And GSK always wants to talk to people who are living with the conditions that we're studying or, at, or at, are at high risk for those conditions. And that's just um, the way that we approach our medicine development program. And GSK, as well as many other industries and academic institutions, were rapidly evaluating, did they have something in their existing um, drugs that were already on the market or in their pipeline that could be um, evaluated quickly for COVID to, to deal with the, the pandemic. And as you know, many of those um, assets were put into fast track. We knew from early surveillance reports, from global reports, and also looking at COVIDnet in the United States, that there was a higher burden of disease and severity in U.S. minority communities, and especially among the elderly. One of our other um, very important principles at GSK is that we make sure that we try and study those with the highest burden of disease. If you're an industry sponsor sitting here and you were working in the COVID space during that time, you probably also received letters from both um, houses of the U.S. government, both the, the Congress and the Senate sent out advisory letters telling sponsors to make sure that the industry studies being conducted were highly inclusive. So what was our vision? For our assets, we put together what we call patient-centricity plans. And our plan was to rapidly gather patient perspectives on the pandemic and how it had affected their daily lives. And then we had an agreement with our research and development team. While they weren't holding studies for us to talk to patients about the design of the studies, because we were obviously in a fast-track mode, they did agree that if we had some key or critical learnings about how to lower the burden of trial participation, that they would modify the trials to, be include, to include those solutions for patients. We wanted to partner with patients that had, been, um, had severe disease. So we started looking for people who were post-hospitalized. And in some cases, we knew that maybe the patient themselves might not want to talk to us, but maybe their excuse me, maybe their family member would like to talk to us because we were looking for solutions to lower the burden of participation. For those of you who may have had loved ones who were hospitalized or know someone, it was a very lonely experience because you were not allowed to have family members supporting you in the hospital. 
And we also wanted to work on an awareness campaign. We felt that it was important to raise the level of awareness about the pandemic um, through brochures or handbooks that could be handed out at um, testing centers, and also to increase the, the opportunity for study awareness in communities that might not be aware that there was clinical trials in their area. So what were our challenges? Obviously, if you work in um, research or um, academia, you often have literature that you can turn to, to tell you about the burden, the unmet need. In this case, the pandemic was new, and there wasn't a, a body of literature we could go to. Clinical study designs that were already in place were rapidly evolving. If you were a patient involved in a clinical trial, you know this. If you were conducting a trial, you know this. There was a lot of um, fast-tracked types of solutions to continue to get investigational product to patients, to do telemedicine, other ways to conduct clinical research. So it was a very fluid situation at the time. We did not have any well-established COVID patient organizations that we could turn to and say, do you have some patients that might want to partner with us and tell their story? And I, for a lot of our existing organizations, they were also scrambling to meet the basic needs of their patient communities and didn't have a lot of resources in place to tell us who had COVID or who didn't. And you'll remember the media back then. It was scary. It was scary to think about having COVID, to think about being hospitalized with COVID, and there was limited testing centers. We saw just from the last presentation, 1,500 people waiting in line to be tested for COVID. The demographic profile that we set out, which was in keeping with our clinical research, was to talk to a family member or a patient who had clinically proven COVID. In other words, it wasn't the person had to have tested positive. We had to eliminate a couple patients um, from talking with us because they couldn't prove that they had actually had a, a diagnosis of COVID. We preferred to speak, as I said, with someone who had been hospitalized. They could have been vented or non-vented, but we were looking to speak with more severe patients. And we were seeking those that had the highest burden of COVID at that time, um, which meant that we were seeking to talk to a diverse group of people, including elderly patients. So what were our methods? We started by asking our existing panel GSK has several long-standing panels of patients um, in oncology, in um, different um, immunology groups, and we reached out to get their input. What would they want to know if they were participating in a COVID clinical trial? We also, and I loved it because it fits in so well with the previous talk this afternoon, is we reached out to our employee resource groups to understand how do we get the message right? We need to get a wide diversity of patients who are willing to talk to us. How do we ask and make this request in a culturally appropriate way? And we also reached out to our occupational health groups in the US and the UK because they were learning of our employees who were affected by COVID or family members. And so they were able to present that, would you like to talk to um, the patient focused development group about your COVID experience? So we opened up the ability to talk to our own employees and family members about COVID. We also talked um, with healthcare professionals, asking them to see if some of their patients might be willing to talk to us. As you can imagine, the investigators were very busy and um, the pulmonologist and others who were treating these patients had 
little time to do a lot of searching for patients um, to participate in this project due to just trying to save lives at that time. We spread the word through our employee networks to, that we were looking for patients, family, friends, and neighbors who might be willing to talk to us, who might know somebody who um, we could talk to. Senior living centers, because I mentioned the elderly communities that we were interested in talking with. And we, worked, um, we looked for academic and community clinics that worked primarily in minority communities that had a known vested interest in research. And we also eventually, over the year, talked to evolving COVID support groups. So our outcome and successful tactics, and these are not in rank order. Existing panels, they gave us great insight from the beginning about the current clinical trials and what would I want to know if I was participating in a clinical trial. And some of what they told us was surprising, something that we hadn't thought of um, through our operations group in R&D. We ended up sending out a Dear Investigator letter, citing what our patients were telling us were the most important things they would want to know in a current clinical trial. We also put together a what to expect site tool so that if a site was calling a patient to remind them about an on-site visit, these are the things that patients want to know during this pandemic. Even basic things, which entrance is opened, where should I park today? We worked with a community clinic in a, the DC metro area that I can't say enough about. They were fantastic support for us and they had a research team that was dedicated to this project, remembering that this was not a research project. This was just, would you like to talk to us? Can we interview you about your experience? And that came from their physician lead. We also, um, they also had great pre-established networks within the community. They knew how to do research, so they knew how to reach out to this community. Friends, family, and neighbors was a highly successful way of finding people who were willing to talk to us. And we did have some physicians who came forward, and especially with those very, very sick patients, were able to identify those who had survival stories that they were willing to share with us. We actually did have GSK employees who stepped forward, and that some, in some cases they spoke to us not about themselves, but their experience with their loved one. And we worked from the very beginning with our clinical trial diversity team to really help support us because we were trying to do a lot of interviews over a short period of time, and um, that was uh, one of the most successful tactics for us. So we achieved that vision we set out for that first nine months, which actually rolled a little bit over into 2021. We were able to, um, GSK completed a COVID brochure and handbook and it was used to educate the U.S. public about COVID and research. It was done in both Spanish and English. We were able to um, complete a diary project where we have individuals who are willing to share their COVID stories. Those stories are now being used at symposiums, congresses, and social media to tell the story about COVID, um, how it was um, unscripted, unbranded, just their own personal stories. We did numerous interviews to better inform our COVID research projects as well. So learnings for the future. We've heard this over and over and over again, and I can't say how important it was. It was the primary, whenever I talk about this, reason that we were able to speak with patients early in a pandemic. 
it was because of a trusted source asking that person to want to engage with us, whether it be the neighbor, whether it be the research institute that they knew well and they trusted, or their physician who had taken care of them through the pandemic. We could not rely solely on technology. Only two of our methods relied on technology, and one was our own GSK intranet. So I think that we had to think outside the box. All of our interviews were done over the phone. And that wasn't because they didn't want to come into the clinic. It was because they wanted to remain anonymous in, many, in some cases. Be prepared to conduct the engagements in the native language. That's obvious, but that's why working with our diversity team was great, because we had people who were multilingual who could help us with the interviews. We also extended the interview time if we knew that we had to do translations, and we were willing to do the interviews after hours and on weekends, if that's what it required. The biggest thing I think that we learned at GSK, and we've taken this back as an initiative, is be prepared to support your internal team. Remember I mentioned that we had some volunteer interviewers from our diversity team. I myself am a nurse, so I'm used to talking to patients, and I'm used to hearing some emotional stories. Not everybody on our team was. And after um, someone spoke to me after a weekend interview on a Friday and said, you know, I didn't sleep all weekend because I was so upset about that interview, we now have a way of caring for and um, helping our own teams to, uh, to be prepared for emotionally what they might hear when they engage with patients who have dramatic stories. Um, one other key point was to make sure that you separate your patient interviews from your family interviews. We heard stories where I don't want my family member to know this, but I was sure I was going to die. Or um, they told me he only had 24 hours to live. They were, were very emotional um, shared stories that they said that they did not want their loved one to hear. But because we separated the two, we were able to obviously have those very frank discussions. Now, if they wanted to be together, we also, you know, certainly did that. And we weren't able to meet all the demographic groups. And we learned later that there were some stigmas in certain cultures. Had we known that, maybe we could have um, done a better job. In retrospect, I probably would go back to our um, employee resource groups and back to the researchers to try and understand how we could do a better job to make sure that we met all of the demographic targets that we had planned. So I'm going to show you two stories, success stories, of people who are living with COVID currently, post-long COVID, but this is the diary project, and I'd like to introduce you to Sophia. So I've not long got up. And I've got a really bad sore throat, but this is how I am every single morning. Um, the sort of hoarse voice, it does wear off as the day goes on, but in the mornings it feels really sore. Um, this has been a daily occurrence pretty much since near the start of having the onset of coronavirus symptoms. Um, Sadly, it's 27 weeks today of um, this awful journey that I seem to be on. Um, I'm actually about to do a throat swab uh, because one of my latest scan results showed that my tonsils are enlarged and inflamed. Um, I mean, that's pretty much to be expected. 
um, with all of this. So we're just sending this swab off just to double check that there's nothing else um, that is causing the sore throat other than I imagine COVID. And this is John. Knowing that other people are going through this and companies are trying to help people get to the end of this is, is a real help, not just physically, but mentally. Because I think for me, going out and seeing people is a real hard thing to do at the minute because people can see with my breathing that there's something wrong and that really, it really sort of, it makes it hard mentally to be able to go out. So it's made me more, um, more want to stay indoors and not be around people. So knowing that this is going to get possibly out to masses of people really helps me knowing that that's going to help other people. Um, and it, it gives people the opportunity to, to think a little bit more out the box and think that there is an ending to this somewhere, even though at the moment I'm not, I'm in the midst of this, but it gives me the drive to be able to get back to some normal, some form of normality and the medical, um, medical side of people will be able to see that what they might be able to do to help people through this um, and everything will come together. So that's a couple examples of people telling their own story in their own words as to um, COVID and how it affected them. So I think I have time for some questions then. I, I think we, let's see Kate. No questions, I'm sorry. So no Susan, questions, okay. Yeah, but, but please do find Susan afterwards. I yes, think that was really do. wonderful, Susan. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Patients as Partners Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit patientsaspartners.org. Thank you.